Hey everybody, we're going to move into our time of scripture reading for a worship service. Um, reading scripture is a worship to God. And so we're going to read John chapter 10, verses 22 through the end of the chapter and 42. And you can find this on page 1633 of your pew Bible. Um, and I think I'm one of the only people who says this, but if you need a Bible, if you don't have one at home, or if you know somebody who needs one, there's a sticker on the back that says, we're okay with you taking it. And we believe the word of God is living and active and is extremely powerful for you. So... Let's read together, John chapter 10, from verse 22. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe me. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I have said you are gods. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, What about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. It's the word of the Lord written for his people. Hey, good morning. My name is Adam. I'm one of the, one of the pastors here, and uh, it's good to be with you all. So one of, one of the things that John is trying to do is we're working through the Gospel of John. I mean, like, preaching through something like the Gospel of John is frustrating as a pastor because almost every week the application would, could be, you should believe in Jesus, right? Like, that's, that's John's whole point. And, like, every passage— that's his whole point. You should believe in Jesus. And so, uh, you know, that can get kind of boring for a preacher as you're trying to preach through a book and it's 21 chapters and we're going through it kind of slowly. However, in the book, John says this a whole bunch of different ways. He comes at it from just about every angle you possibly could. And he says, like, he expands on what it is you should believe about Jesus over and over and over again, right? So that that what it is that you should believe about Jesus keeps growing. And then how we respond and what the reasons we don't believe in Jesus keep getting pulled into uh, each passage. And one of the things that this passage specifically talks about is that, um, or one of the themes that comes up in this passage specifically is the idea that 
someone should be believed only if their actions and their words match up. Like, so, so if somebody has integrity, that is, if, they're, if the things that they do match with the words that they say, then that person is believable. Now, we call that integrity. The opposite, uh, the opposite of that we call hypocrisy. The problem is that no one really does this in life, right? No one, no one is truly, uh, has full integrity. And so because of our jadedness, as a result of that, we are jaded against anyone who looks like they might have integrity. We go, well, we're just kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. And I think that's particularly true in modern America, right? Like anyone who we think looks pretty good, we're just sort of waiting for the moral failure to happen. We're just wait, sort of waiting to find out what's in their past that we don't know about yet. And they're gonna, they're, it's all going to fall apart at some point, right? They look nice. They look, they, they look really good for the moment. And then they don't anymore. And so what that, do, what that has allowed us to do in our minds is write people off who have integrity or who seem to have integrity because we assume that they don't. And then, we, and then because of that assumption, we find all sorts of reasons not to believe the people that really to us ought to be the most believable. And this is exactly the problem Jesus is facing here in this passage, right? The, what, what ha- so uh, my, the best, funniest illustration I could think of this for a person who does this, who has this sort of integrity in modernity is Ron Swanson. Okay, because Ron Swanson is a great character. If you're not familiar, he's from the show Parks and Rec. He's a great character. Uh, But Ron Swanson's deal is that he is like, he is fully devoted to his ideas, no matter how unpopular they are, and he is going to live by them no matter what, right? So there's a scene where he is writing letters to people he doesn't like. And Ron Swanson is a guy who likes meat a lot. And so he writes a letter to a vegan restaurant in town that says, veganism is a sad result of a morally corrupt mind. Reconsider your life. And then he signs his name. And so the owner of the vegan restaurant shows up and is like, what did you, why did you write me this? And he goes, well, because I believe it. And, and then he storms off. He goes, carnivores. Ugh. And storms off. And one of, the, one of his coworkers goes, how did he know where to find you? Ron's like, well, probably because I signed my name and told him my address, right? <laughs> and she's, she's like completely repulsed by this idea the, because there's this integrity that goes along with it. Like you shouldn't sign your name to everything you say. You shouldn't have that sort of integrity. And the problem is Jesus has this kind of integrity. His words and his actions match up and that can cause one of two reactions in you. As a result, the first reaction is, you could believe him. You could go, okay, he has integrity. His, the things he's saying and the things he's doing seem to match up and line up so perfectly that he must, like, there must be something true about him. There must be something worth believing and worth following. The other reaction that can have is to repulse you. The other reaction that can have is for you to go, is to sort of wait for the other shoe to drop, to be jaded, to be looking, and, and to cause you, instead, to, instead of believing in him, to cause you instead to search as diligently as you possibly can and as fully as you possibly can for the thing that's actually wrong with him, for the other shoe, that's, or, or for the thing that's in his past that's going to drop, right? Now, this morning what we're going to look at is a passage where uh, there's a group of people who are having this very dilemma. 
They're, they're, they're trying to decide what are they going to do with Jesus, this man who seems to have integrity. And Jesus is looking at him going, you guys, like, can't you see that these line, my, my words and my actions line up so much that you should believe in me and you shouldn't be afraid to believe in me? And yet they refuse to. And so we're going to look at um, the four ways in which Jesus' words and actions what four things that Jesus' words and actions as they line up say about him, and then the two reactions that could produce in you. So first, Jesus' words and actions say that he is the Messiah. He's the Messiah. That is, he is the long-awaited king of Israel that's going to come and save his people, save God's people. And this passage starts with the Jews in Jerusalem asking Jesus, tell us plainly whether or not you're the Messiah. And Jesus' response is funny because he says, oh, I already told you. Which is actually not really true. Right? If, so far in the book of John, the only person Jesus has told that he's the Messiah is the Samaritan woman. Not a Jew. And in private. It's just the two of them there. His disciples aren't even there. And the Jews are like, well, tell us plainly if you're the Messiah. And Jesus is like, I did tell you. And so you got to kind of wonder what's going on here. So, you know, did, is either Jesus has forgotten that he didn't really mention that fact, or John, who's writing a, a whole book with the sole purpose of trying to make you believe in Jesus, is putting lying words in Jesus's mouth. Seems unlikely. Or there's something else going on here. Which is I think what is happening. Because Jesus immediately links his claim that he's already told them he's the Messiah with the works he's done. Right? So he says, I did tell you, but you didn't believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. So what he's saying there is that the things that I have done, the words that I've said and the things that I've done have made, are very plain. It's been very plain to you. It should have been very plain to you that I am the Messiah from those things that I've done. Um, right? And, and specifically, he's just healed a blind man at a, at a pool called Siloam or the Pool of Siloam, which that whole passage in chapter 9 has just messianic overtones all over it. He's fed the 5,000 and shown himself to be the new and the greater Moses. He's, he's healed a paralyzed man. And then in the midst of all those things, he's made claims like he's the bread of life, the manna from heaven that God has sent, right? He, that he's the light of the world. He is the gate to the, gate to the sheepfold. He's just told them, I am the good shepherd, which is, is definitely a messianic title, Right? The, the, the Messiah was supposed to be the second coming of the King David, who was a shepherd boy, right? Like, J Jesus is like, I'm the good shepherd. And they're like, tell us if you're the Messiah. Jesus is like, I just, I just told you. And then I healed a blind man. He was blind from birth. Don't, don't you see how these kind of go together? Um, right? In all of his works, all of the things he has said to this idea, to, to this point, have let, should lead to the obvious conclusion that he's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, the continuation of the Old Testament figures, the typology, that they were all typologies pointing to Jesus. And he's plainly talked, Jesus has plainly talked in the book multiple times to them about his unique relationship with God. And so for the Jews in Jerusalem not to see that he's already cl plainly claimed to be the Messiah— is just ridiculous. Now you sort of have to, you have to wrestle with the fact of like, why wouldn't Jesus just here go, well, I am the Messiah though. Like, okay, it hasn't been clear to you. I am the Messiah. Now, most commentators will tell you, and I think is right, 
is that the Messiah, the word Messiah in Second Temple Judaism comes with, came with such uh, heavily political and military overtones. Like the connotations that went along with it were, were so, had become so specific over time. And Jesus is like, Jesus is the Messiah, but he's not the Messiah in the way that they think of the Messiah, right? Their conception of the Messiah is too narrow and it's too specific and it's, it's not exactly right. It doesn't exactly line up with what the Messiah actually is and what Jesus actually is. And so he doesn't want to say the word Messiah because when he says the word Messiah, the Jews are going to immediately go, okay, he's claiming to be the king who's going to overthrow Rome. And the Romans are going to be like, hey, he's claiming to be the king that's going to overthrow Rome. We should probably kill this guy. And Jesus is going to get killed, spoiler alert, but, uh, but not yet. It's not his time yet. And so he's not going to go and make that claim just yet. Not explicitly with those words that he wants them to use, right? And I think it's, it's a little bit like they're trying to put words— I don't know if you've ever had this experience where someone— you're having an argument with someone, and you say something, and then they repeat it back to you, but they say it in a little different way, and they're trying to put words in your mouth, and the way they said it sounds a lot worse. And they're trying to, they're trying to get you to say something that is obviously bad so that they can attack you. They're trying to put words in your mouth so that they can attack you. And that's, that's what they're doing here with Jesus. They're trying to put words in his mouth— that are, gonna, that are gonna give everyone who's watching, everyone around, the ability to condemn, accuse, cancel, kill him. And Jesus is just not gonna play that game. He's not gonna let him do that. Now we're gonna come back to the rest of the verses in this section here, but Jesus does make one plain statement about himself in this passage, in this section. He says that he and the Father are one. Um, now, uh, their reaction to his one plain statement, which is less than a claim to be the Messiah, but is, you know, more than just a claim to being a normal guy, is to stone him, is to kill him, which is the right reaction if someone is blaspheming. Not the right method. There's supposed to be a trial and some other things. They, they kind of skip over that. But they, they decide they're going to stone him. And the mob mentality kind of takes over. Now, this, is, this can be true for you, too. This, Jesus' claims here to be the Savior, this idea that he's the only Savior, can produce in you either belief that, you're gonna, that you can believe in Jesus because the, his actions and his words have lined up so nicely and neatly that they, they overlay so perfectly. You can see that he's true. You can see that he's a man of integrity. You can see that what he says is true by, by what he's done and that what he's done, doing is true because of what he's saying. Like they, they match up. That can produce faith in you. It can also produce a desire to look, to search, to try to put words in his mouth such that you can Ignore him, or worse, kill him. Um, the second thing that, that Jesus' words and his actions say, point to, is that, um, is that he is the son of God. All right, so they, they're going to kill him. They pick up stones. They got stones in their hands. They're, they're cocked and ready to go. And Jesus interrupts them, and he says, uh, for, what, for which of the good works that I've done are you going to kill me? Which is a brilliant statement, by the way, because it, it really 
sidetracks them. Like, like you have this mob that's re- just ready to go, and then Jesus says something that's so confusing to them. They're like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. wait. You, we're not going to kill you because of what you've done. We're going to kill you because you just said you and God were equal, that you were, that you were on the same playing, uh, plane with God. They understand he's claiming to be God, which they claim is blasphemy. They're right that he's claiming to be God, but they don't see that it's not blasphemy because he is one with the Father. And what I would do if I was Jesus in that situation is I, I would go back and I would say, I would say exactly that. You think I'm blaspheming. Under normal circumstances, if somebody claims to be God, yes, that is blasphemy. But I'm different. I actually am God. We should, let's, let me show you how I'm God and let's walk you through the scriptures and show, like, let's lay this out so that you can see that while I am claiming to be God, it's not blasphemy. That's what I would do. Jesus doesn't do that. It's really interesting. Instead, Jesus quotes Psalm 82, which is a kind of obscure passage in the Old Testament. And in the midst of Psalm 82, in verse 6, God says, you are gods, you are all sons of the Most High. So he's talking to his people, and, and he says, you are gods, little g gods, sons of the Most High. So in some sense, it's okay for God to refer to his people as gods. That is reflections of him. And Jesus brings this up, and he's like, you guys, your scriptures say, your God in your scriptures say that all of God's people are, are gods. I just said I'm a God, that I'm one with God, that I'm the son of God. Why is that a problem? It says in your scriptures that that's not a problem. That we're, we're all sons of God. And not only that, I'm clearly not just some other guy, some other Jew, some other, you know, one of God's people. I'm doing these works. I'm saying these things. I'm like, I am more than your average Joe here. So it should be perfectly fine for me to say that I'm the son of God. You see, you see his, his kind of logic here. And then he says, if I'm, if I'm not doing the works of my father, don't believe in me. So he's like, he's like, listen, if, if, if I'm, if I'm not doing the things that God does, then sure, I'm not a son of God. But if I am, then you should believe that. Um, And what he says here is he says, listen, even if you won't believe me, even if you won't believe the things I say, even if you won't believe that I'm the Messiah, you won't believe everything about me, you won't believe that I am the bread of life, you won't believe that I am the the good shepherd, you won't, won't, even if you won't believe all that, at least believe the works that I'm doing. Like, you don't have to believe I'm the bread of life, but I just fed 5,000 people, so, and you saw that. So clearly, like, I'm, I'm, God's doing something here, right? right? This, I just healed a blind man who's, he was born blind. He's been blind for a long time, and then I came along and I healed him. Like, doesn't that seem like something God would do to you? So even if you can't, be, even if you can't believe that I am like the good shepherd, don't you see that at least I'm connected with God in a really unique way that you could call me this, a son of God and that you could at least believe that, minimally. Right? Jesus at least wants them to believe that he's doing the works that no one but God could do. And therefore, he must have some kind of unique 
connection to God. Even if he's not the Messiah, you can, like, they should be able to see that. And what I think is remarkable about this section here is that Jesus is still trying to persuade these people to believe in him. I mean, like, if, if, again, what Jesus could have done is said something stunning to them and then slipped away, gotten away, not gotten killed, and just sort of wiped in, go, okay, well, they're, they're just not going to believe. I told them, I showed them, I did everything I could, they're not going to believe. And yet he's still trying to, it's not too late for them to believe. They literally have stones in their hands with their arms cocked, ready to kill Jesus, and it's still not late for them, too late for them to believe. And in fact, Jesus sticks around and, and risks death again in order that they might, right? And they, they try to grab him again because again, he makes the claim that he and his father are intimately connected, right? Um, he says again, they, um, I'm sorry, in verse 38, but if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. This is, that is not quite the same thing as, as I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one is a stronger statement, right? Jesus is like, but, okay, you're not going to believe that. Great. Will you at least believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? There, there is some really unique connection here. And, um, and Jesus, but they won't, they won't believe. Instead, they, they refuse to believe, and they're ready to kill him again, and Jesus slips away because it's not his time. And Jesus actually leaves Jerusalem then. He's not going to come back to Jerusalem for three or four months until um, when he comes back, he'll be ushered in on palm branches on a donkey, and then he'll be killed several days later. So this is kind of last hurrah in Jerusalem before Holy Week. Right? And so for us, I think this is important. We have to, like, even if, and especially if you're a skeptic, or you're not quite sure about the whole Jesus thing, but you're coming to church, you're checking it out. Jesus wants you to know, like, it's, one, it's not too late for you to believe, and two, even if you're not ready to believe sort of the whole deal, the, the, you're not ready to kind of accept all of it, like, can't you see that the things, the kinds of things that Jesus does in the gospel and in the lives of human beings that are, like, sitting in this room, can't you see that, like, those are the works of God, that there's at least some kind of unique connection that'd be worth exploring more, at least believe those works, that Jesus is doing some really remarkable good things, the works of God in the world, and at least start there and then see where that takes you. Um, Jesus' word, so then Jesus escapes up to the north, and Jesus' words and actions then... Um, they say he's the Son of God. Jesus' words and actions then say that he is true. So Jesus retreats to the northeast. Kind of like, imagine him going up to the north woods. It's rural. It's, it's out of the way. It's no longer in the hub, the capital. And he gets to the area where John had been doing ministry previously, the John the Baptist, who we saw at the beginning of the book. Now, John is dead at this point. He's been dead for a while. Um, was, he was killed, and he... Um, and he's been gone for some time. But there's a lot of people around who still remember John's ministry, who'd followed John around, who'd heard John preach, who'd heard the things that John had said about the one that was going to come before him. And then John got killed. And they remember that John had never performed a miraculous sign. He'd never done anything that was so remarkable that it was just outside the realm of explainable. And yet, 
as they're watching Jesus' ministry and they're hearing Jesus teach as he comes back, they realize that Jesus is doing all the things that John said that this one that was going to come before him was going to do. That Jesus is backing up all of not only Jesus' words, but John's words with his actions. And so, um, and John's testimony from years before bears fruit after his death. Many people in that area believed in Jesus because of John's words. And so one of the things you've, one of the questions that comes up for me in this passage, or in this section, is what's the difference between these two sets of people? You've got Jews in Jerusalem who refuse to believe, who have seen all these signs, who, who, have, who should have all, like, all the reason in the world to believe, and yet instead they just want to kill him when, G, when he talks about who he is and what his connection with God is. And then you have these people that had been ministered to by John a couple of years ago and who the moment they see Jesus and they see Jesus doing the things that John said he was going to do, they believe in him. Why, what's, what's the difference? And both, of, both groups of people are being skeptical or judgmental, right? Both groups of people are looking at Jesus and they're judging him. They're, they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, okay, is he who he says he is? So that's not, it, the skepticism is actually not the problem. The problem is the, the motivation behind the skepticism. The problem is the, the attitude with which they are approaching the, their skeptical questions, right? The Jews in Jerusalem are approaching their skeptical questions with the idea that Jesus couldn't possibly be this, and we need to find a way to, to debunk him. We need to find a way to get at him. We need to find a way for him to say something so that we can kill him and get rid of him. Whereas the, the John's former followers are up in the Northeast, and they're looking at Jesus, and they're going, okay, is he the real deal? Is there evidence to show that he's actually doing the things that we believe the Messiah would do, that John said the Messiah would do? Right? And those two motivations, those two attitudes are critical. Because as much as we want to say, like in, a, in modern Madison, what we want to say is that we're really skeptical, intelligent people. We want the truth. We want to we follow the truth. We want to look for the truth. We're not going to just take anybody's word for, for it, right? We don't, we're not like blind faith. We're not like those people out in the woods that just like, they'll just believe anything, you know? Not, not us. We're too, in, we're, we're too sophisticated for that. And Jesus is saying, look, that's okay. You can be sophisticated. You can think. You can use your brain to come to me and believe in me. But use your brain. Right? Actually look at it and come to me and look at me and judge me and be skeptical about me in a way that's going to be honest. Right? Actually look and see, am I, do I, do what I, does what I say and what I do line up? And if it is, then believe in me. Right? And one of the things that you will find is that more often than not, more often than you'd like to admit, when you come to Jesus— and when you look at Jesus, you do so with a lens of, he must be wrong. I've got to find where he's wrong. Rather than, is he true? Does it match up? And one of those leads to belief, and one of those leads to wanting to kill him, or at least wanting to write him off. Um, oh. 
Now, that sounds like, that statement sounds like I'm speaking mostly to people who have not believed in Jesus yet at all. But remember, in the passage, Jesus, the Jews in Jerusalem who don't believe him are the most religious people, right? It's often the religious people who are looking for ways in which to write Jesus off or write the words of Jesus, of Jesus off such that you can get around some of his words. So you can say, well, that's not what he's really saying. So that you can figure out ways that, and, and we do this all the time, and we often will, we call it doctrine. We'll say, we, we'll say like, we believe in this theology about Jesus. That way, when Jesus says this thing over here about the poor, we can go, well, you know, yeah, he meant that, but not exactly, you know. We, we like find all sorts of pitfalls, a way, ways in which we can make Jesus' words say the things we want him to say so that we can live in the way we actually want to live. And it's really sophisticated. And in the end, what it really boils down to is unbelief. I'm going to get at what this looks like a little more in a minute. But one of the things you should ask yourself is, am I in my life, in the, the specific areas of my life in which I think Jesus is speaking to me, am I looking to believe him and see if the things he says is true? Or am I looking for ways to debunk him? Am I looking, am I just looking for the way out to believe him? And it may not be disbelieving him altogether, but it may be in, a speci in one specific way. It may be with his views on marriage or on sexuality or on children or on work or on retirement or on, right? Like, like it could mean a, a whole bunch of different areas in your life. The, one of the questions that, that struck me as I was studying this passage this week is, why does Jesus care so much that these people believe in him? Right? Again, like if it was me, I would have, the first time they tried to kill me, I would have been like, all right, I'm out of here. You guys had your chance, you know? See you later. But he sticks around. And why does he care so much that these people who are literally trying to kill him would believe him? Because, and I think it's this, because it's the only way he can protect them. Right? Jesus in this passage back in, in verse 27 says that he will protect his sheep. Verse 27 and 28 says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Think about the picture Jesus is just painting here, right? Because if you were here last week, you know that the passage that came immediately before this is Jesus saying he's the good shepherd and the gate to the sheepfold. Jesus is painting a picture. He's, uh, he's painting a picture here of him as the shepherd who is watching over his sheep. And any of the sheep that would follow him will be safe. He's saying no one can snatch them out of my hand. But if they won't follow me, they will walk into danger and they will die. Now he's about to prove in the next chapter, that he has the ability to do this. Because um, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead in the next chapter. So he's going to prove that he can actually protect people from death. That he can protect anyone who would follow him, that he can take his sheep and he can actually raise them from the dead. And it's going to be another one of these works that Jesus is pointing to who he is and that his words and his actions line up. He actually can protect people from death. And here's the point. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And, 
And, and he is one that, who is one with God in such a way that God as the giver of life has given Jesus the ability to give life, to give eternal life such that no one, not one of his sheep who believe in him will perish and none can steal them from him. Right? And what that leads you in is a little bit of a predicament because you've got to decide, okay, am I going to believe that about Jesus? Am I going to follow Jesus and trust that wherever he leads me, it's safer than anywhere I could imagine or what look, might look better to me because of the fact that he's with me? Or am I going to trust my own mind, my own thoughts, my own sensibilities and think, okay, I will— I know Jesus says to go over here. I know he says to do this. I know this is the direction he's going. That looks kind of dangerous. That looks like he might be leading me towards death. That looks like he may be leading me towards more wolves, not less. And this over here looks more comfortable. It looks a little more appealing. And so I'm going to go over here instead. And what Jesus, what Jesus says here is, no, no, no. Listen, if you go over here, it, it looks nice, but you are then no longer under my protection. You're too far away for me to do anything, for me to do anything about it. And Jesus proves that he is, the, he is the good shepherd. He proves that he is the one who will protect his sheep even unto death, not only in raising Lazarus, but when he himself went to the cross in order, and died in order to protect you. He is the good shepherd. He is the one who laid down his life for his sheep. The one who, when the wolf came and the robbers came, sacrificed his own life so that you could be safe, so that you could live. Because you are one of his sheep and no one is going to snatch you away from him. If you are within, if you are in his sheepfold, if you have come into the gate that he is protecting, you cannot be snatched away from him. And he will go to the, to the very end to make sure that you are safe. And when he was raised from the dead, and then he was raised from the dead so that you could know that he has the authority over life to not only protect your life, but to give you life eternally. Therefore, if you're one of Jesus' sheep, you have complete and utter protection. Which what this means is the world can rage around you. The world can throw anything it wants at you. You can enter the most dangerous places and like King David, you can say, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they come for me. Why? Because not only do they poke and prod you in the direction of Jesus, but they also protect you from the wolves and the thieves that would come in and try to steal you and kill you and destroy you. Because you're one of his sheep. Therefore, you can follow him. His sheep know his voice and they follow him. You can follow him into even dangerous and uncomfortable places, places you would never go on your own. That you would think in your own mind can't possibly be the way to, to life. And yet they're actually the less dangerous place now. They're the more secure place because you're following him into them. And so when he calls you into the hard things of life, you can do so without fear in a world that is frankly terrified. And so don't be afraid to believe in Jesus. He is the good shepherd and he's proved it through his death and resurrection. Let's pray.
Father, you we we follow you. We trust you, Lord. We trust that though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, though we enter into places that seem difficult and painful, that if we follow you, we are secure and safe, that there is nothing that can be, that we cannot be snatched away, that we will have everything we need, that you will care for us. Lord, help us, we believe that, help us to believe that deeper and in new ways and in new areas of our lives and in ways we haven't considered before. We pray that we would believe it such that we, we like Paul, could, could say to live as Christ and to die as gain. That we would be so afraid of what, would, what could happen to us. That we, would be so unaf- that we would be so unafraid of what people might say about us or what people might do to us if we followed you. That we, could, that we could walk into the deepest, darkest places. We could experience all the world has to throw at us and walk confidently, live in the fullness of life. Father, I pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.